Welcome to the Unscripted Podcast, where we chat with some of our pals and industry friends. Today, uh, today's podcast is brought to you by Script Anatomy, LA's most industry-focused TV writing school taught entirely by working writers. Script Anatomy students have gone on to win fellowships, secure top representation, and land their first writing jobs on numerous network and cable shows. Be sure to visit their website at scriptanatomy.com for more info. And we're here at the Culver Hotel tonight, so please enjoy the house music and ambient bar noise that you hear in the background. Um, as we uh, have a chat with the TV writer who's worked on House, Battle Creek, and he's now on Fox's Rosewood, uh, Marquis Jackson. Thanks for coming on, Marquis. Hello, how are you? Good, it's great to talk to you. Yeah, man. good to talk to you again. Um, for those who are new to the podcast, Marquis has been on before, so you can go back and uh, check him out. He's done other interviews for us in the past. Um, so go to scriptsandscribes.com. Uh, Marquis on there. Um, we have his page on there. Um, and you're on Rosewood now. Yes, I'm on Rosewood. The last time we talked to you were on House. Yes. So in, be, in between these conversations, in between House and Rosewood, you were on Battle Creek yes. by two amazing showrunners. Yes. Um, Vince Gilligan and, and David Shore. Yes. Um, so maybe before we jump into Rosewood, which I definitely want to talk to you about, okay. um, let's talk about going from House as a staff writer to uh, Battle Creek. How, I'm assuming because House and, and Battle Creek are both David Shore, you, you know, that was sort of your yes, yes da- Yeah, David Shore was definitely the connection uh, between those two shows. And uh, we had a few of the writers from House on Battle Creek, um, you know, Russell Friend and Garrett Lerner and Tommy Moran, and a few of their writers' assistants. So in a lot of ways, it was just kind of putting on a familiar pair of new shoes. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so it was really kind of good working with those guys. And it was a smaller staff this time around. Um, so I got a chance to really kind of, to kind of know Russ and Garrett and Tommy a little bit more um, as I was kind of doing my own episode too. But um, it was different kind of working with David Shore on a procedural. Um, right. And then Battle Creek, you know, had a lot of levity to it. You know, in ways that in ways you don't normally see on every procedural. Um, but still had a lot of what House was. That, that interesting perspectives of your two leads and they're different in the conflict that that kind of you know creates. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a really good you know experience on that show. Right. Um, just kind of cr- you know crafting something you know based on an original script from Vince Gilligan that he wrote years and years right. ago. Um, so no, a good group, great cast. It's always a really good crew. It was a good experience. I liked the show. Actually. Yeah. I'm, I'm sort of disappointed that it didn't get picked up. Yeah. You know, it was weird because you know we didn't initially get um, a fall air date, and they weren't sure where they're going to put us. And then you know they put us on after the Good Wife um, started in March, and just ultimately. For CBS, that was just a bad, a low, you know, ratings night anyway. So um, yeah, it was unfortunate, you know, because it would have been nice to, to continue on with that group. But um, kind of like in a really good sense, Battle Creek really did prepare me a lot for Rosewood because Rosewood does have a lot of humor as well. Oh yeah. Um, so when I came to Rosewood, I kind of was able to kind of bring the Battle Creek experience on to right. this show. And had the law enforcement stuff too. And then I had the law enforcement yeah. too. Yeah, I had done another uh, cop show called The Forgotten, Forgotten right. um, with Christian Slater, um, Brookheimer for ABC. So. A lot of that experience is kind of you know carried over, which was great. So um, I guess jumping now to uh, Rosewood, your new show. Um, for those who haven't seen it yet, Rose, Rosewood, it's. Uh, uh, a show about a pathologist, a yes. private pathologist, right. who helps the police solve crime. Right. Um, and I know you've done work on a medical show on the house and uh, on two cop shows. Right. Um, what sort of background do you have, or have you had in that? I mean, uh, how do you write? I mean, I know there. I'm sure there are techniques. You know, there are. Uh, 
yeah. uh, consultants right. for the show. Right. But still coming up with ideas and writing in the correct I mean, you know, uh, dialogue, technically speaking. Right. Um, how does that come, you know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, House, again, was, um, like as you mentioned, just really good preparation for it. And right. yeah, we have great consultants, um, you know, guys that kind of research guys that kind of give us information that we need. And, you know, we, uh, John Sotos was a consultant on, a medical consultant on House, and so he's with us on Rosewood. And so, you know, it's really easy to just call him up or send him an email about something. So, but, you know, it's a bit of a mix because they'll, they'll bring things to you that you never thought about. And you kind of go to them with like a general shape and an area of what you want the story to be and what the turn you want it to be with the medicine. And But a lot of us, you know, do a lot of our own research too. Um, the thing about the consultants are only as good as the information you bring them because they have so much information and so much knowledge that you have to give them kind of a focus, you know. It's like, you know, like, you know, I did an episode where it's like, oh, the cause of death is low voltage electrocution. It's like, well, you know, it's like, is it possible that you don't see that in an autopsy? And if so, like, how? All those different questions that you can possibly come up with. Right. Um, so it's a combination of both. You know, you might have um, a story like, for example, like with the episode I, my first episode for Rosewood, I know I wanted something dealing with primary and secondary cause of death. Like someone, you know, injured someone in a way that didn't kill them initially but a complication of that injury ultimately kills the victim but that person is still on the hook for the murder because they set it in motion so you know I was researching scenarios about how to make that work and ultimately I want to do something called a negative autopsy which is when a pathologist has no idea what the cause of death is at all and in researching that I stumbled upon the story about this quadriplegic who you know caught a blood clot and died from the clot and so I was like that's really kind of interesting that you have this natural condition this natural complication of, of quadriplegia and how that could be used to mass murder possibly right so then when I went to the researchers that was the question is like how can I induce a clot how can someone go in and intentionally use a blood clot to mass murder right so yeah so it's, so it's interesting kind of how it all kind of falls together and sometimes it's by necessity right you know I need X I need Rosewood to find X so that I can move to this next part of the story is that possible and sometimes it is and sometimes it's not <laughs> um, I, I, I saw your episode I thought it was terrific thank you but I thank thought it was you. especially good because um, well first off a lot happens in it. Yes, it is. It was a lot. You know, uh, Vondi Curtis Hall came in as his, his Rosie's father. Yes, yes. Did a phenomenal um, job. Absolutely. He's a brilliant actor. Yes. Um, but I, I love the way you sort of enter into it because he's sort of introduced and, you know, you're introducing sort of that relationship, a dynamic of their relationship. Right. Um, in terms, and then you sort of reveal that it, the, the uh, Rosie's parents are getting a divorce. Right. And that sort of leads into the trial. Itself. Right. Like you don't, it's not set up like, oh, he's coming here. Right. They're, they're in conflict and they're going to be in a trial together. You don't find out until literally they're walking into the right. courtroom. Right. I thought that was great. Yeah, thank you. Because it was, you, know, you kind of thought maybe something was going to happen because, you know, obviously the nature of the show. Right. But at the same time, it was a surprise. Right. You know, you, it, it was like stages that happened. And you kind of gave a sidetrack. You tried to uh, distract us with the fact, oh, they're getting a divorce. Maybe that's why he's here. That's right. What it's about. Right. And all of a sudden, it's a complete left turn. Right. They're, you know, so. Yeah, they're in this thing. And, and how much leeway do you have to tell stories that, you know, because again, in, in a lot of, of procedurals, you have your sort of formula. Mm -hmm. And I think that that it seems to be, granted, your whole show seems to be a little bit askew of a traditional formula. Right. I think it's great. Right. Um, it's, it's less predictable. Yeah. And, and, 
I think that's great. Um, but how much leeway do you have, again, not as a staff writer and not as, you know, an EP, but as, you know, an executive story editor, someone who's been around the block, um, but yet not the top decision maker. Right. How much leeway do you have to sort of go askew and, and tell your story in your own way? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the way this idea even came about, like um, Todd Harfin, who created Rosewood, um, I remember, I guess, maybe April, May, created a story document for the studio network, just kind of highlighting, you know, you know what episodes, what kind of ideas we wanted to do, and get, you know, gave more backstory and detail on the characters. And originally, in the pilot for Rosewood, there was a mentor character, and the mentor character brought the case to Rosewood versus his mother. And so we were find, talking in the writers' room, trying to find ways to bring the mentor character back in. And then we were trying to think about Rosewood's dad, Beaumont Senior, like what kind of job could we get him, uh, give him, so that we kind of go to him a couple times a season as a consultant. And so I was reading the pilot over the weekend one 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 week, um, trying to come up with new stories, and it just kind of hit me. It's, you know, I had this idea, and I pitched it to Todd. Like, you know, I know we talked about you know the dad and the mentors, two different characters, but I think they're the same for this reason, this reason, and this reason. If we put dad in the courtroom episode, we can do this, 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 and this. Because originally it was Rose versus his mentoring court, and I was like, if you put dad in there, there's so many other things we'll be able to do. And so it's like, great, run with it. And so I ran with it, and a week later, I was like, well, if they don't need me in the room, I would love to keep plugging away at seven. Got thought about it some more, and we can do this, 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 and this. And so we talked about it some more. He's like, well, Marky, you're obviously passionate about it, so go for it. And so he did just that. Let me go for it. And it was essentially I broke um, this episode of Rosewood, kind of like how we did on House. It's like kind of, you know, you do the heavy lifting. It's you and your white boards, but when you need help, you pull a couple people in, or you pop into someone's office and say, hey, I'm stuck here with that. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And Todd actually joked with some of the other writers. He's just like, that Marquis, he's behind that closed door. I leave him alone, because when he comes out, I like what he says, and I'm leaving him alone behind that closed door. So he very much just kind of let me do my thing and was very supportive of it. And he knew it was going to be a different episode and actually kind of pre-pitched it to the studio network to say, hey, we're seven episodes in. Can we, are we allowed to kind of do something that is going to be more of a family drama? Right. And so, and I inherited the divorce storyline from episode six. So then I had to find a way, and this was the challenge of it, to incorporate all of it so that it felt like one fluid story and not, oh, there's a divorce here, oh, there's a case there, oh, there's Rosa and his dad backstory. Right. To try to figure out how to blend it all in together and using the divorce to kind of highlight what the status quo was for Rosewood's relationship with his dad. And then once you understood that, getting you into the courtroom stuff, realizing that all the stuff we just learned about this relationship between his father and son is going to make the court stuff even more contentious between the two of them. Right. Because they're two very strong, very prideful men. Very smart. Yeah, you know, and very smart men. And, and, and they each think they're right and they each are, have this point of view. Right. Um, and it made the medicine challenging too because both of them had to have very strong, not only strong opinions, but accurate opinions. Right. Both of them had to be right. Yeah, both of them had to be right. But one one of them ultimately had to be wrong, and but, so but still partially right. Yeah, and so just a great thing. Oh yeah, so it was it was kind of like threading a needle to trying to find the medicine, and so John Soto's, you know, love him, kind of helped me with that run in the courtroom. Like, well, it's the tissue. Well, no, it's not the tissue. It's this. No, actually, it's not that. It's this. And so that run in the courtroom between father and son, when dad is kind of holding up this uh, notepad from the from the from, from, from the audience, like, well, you know, scarring equals spinal tap. And I was like, nope, spinal tap. 
wouldn't leave a scar, and they wouldn't leave a scar. This, there's a scar. Right. And so, um, so, so that got tricky, but it was ultimately satisfying when your your researchers and your own research, you guys work together and you figure out a solution for it. Right. And again, going back to the, just that sort of both being right, which was surprising to me, because um, I was curious as I was watching it. If it, because you were sort of leaning towards the father, you know, senior being sort of yeah, right, so I, right, uh, and then it completely took a 180, and it looked like Junior was right, right. But then it came out that they're sort of both right, right. They both had they both had different pieces of the story right, right. and wrong, exactly. And so that's what I kind of really loved about it is that Absolutely. you know that you know they they're both very smart. That it wasn't that they missed something, right. is that they both had different pieces of the puzzle, and, and really underscores that is when they came together is that when they solved the case and really the one thing that they agreed on which was the pulmonary embolism that was the key to cracking the case right and so that was really important to me too is like when you got to that end i wanted to the one thing that they agreed on was the thing that was the key right to solving it all and i think but that's the challenge of it and i think that's what made it great because it's easy to pick one or the other oh the father's the, you know rosie's right because of his show right the father's right because rosie's not there just yet or right. whereas you were able to sort of leave it so that they were sort of both right both wrong and they needed each other right. to solve this. Right, and the thing about it, I mean, and, and the, back to House, I mean, that was the challenge with House. I mean, you had six acts and, you know, those DDXs, it's like they all had to be correct and smart theories that ultimately ended up being wrong. Right. So that was always the challenge of the DDX scenes because it's just like we want our guys to pitch smart things and it's so funny, you actually spend a lot, a lot, almost more time thinking about what the disease wasn't <laughs> versus what it ultimately ended up being because you had to pitch like maybe five to ten different things throughout the episode that, that all had to come close to being right and so that same kind of thought process kind of went into this episode of Rosewood is that they both had to be right and wrong and this episode of Rosewood also the the case was complex but also it wasn't really the focal point it was sort of the engine right. that drove it but there was everything else was the story right um, including uh, the divorce um, the uh, the junior senior relationship yeah. and that whole dynamic and, and the resolution of sort of I don't want to say a final resolution but you know they finally right. came to some right. new understanding right. right exactly um, as well as with the uh, uh, villa uh, and, yeah. and Rosewood there was that sort of a whole new stage in their sort of right. relationship but there was a lot going on there yeah it wasn't really about the case no sure. it wasn't and really the case was really there to service the character and you know you know I was talking with someone one of our other writers and they, you know, we all just kind of love the idea when that happens, when yeah. the case serves the character. And, because it's, yeah. and, and a lot, and in Rosewood, like, we don't really have as many case beats compared to other procedures. Right. You know what I mean? We have them, there is a crime, we do catch a killer at the end, but all of those, you know, are really just to service and to figure out and to teach you something about the characters. Right. And it's, I, so far, what I've seen, I've seen, I think I've seen all of them except I think I missed one. Um, but they all seem to be very different. Meaning, like, I, there was the case where uh, the, the, uh, the captain was... Uh, maybe I shouldn't be talking about all this. Oh, yeah, but no, but I, well, Hornstock, yeah, he was a suspect in his ex-wife's murder. Right, right. And, and, but there, it's, it's, you come at things from such different angles every time right. that I think 
It's going to be interesting to see where you guys go with this because uh, it's not just okay. We get a case here. Someone died. Here's a case file. You know, right. it's like you see a murder at the beginning. Well, no, and, th and that's yeah, and that's the thing with our show. You know, you don't necessarily. I think maybe the first couple you saw the murder right. you know, towards the beginning, but in a lot of times, like Rosa doesn't even get the body until the end of Act One in our episode. Right. You know, and that's by design. You right. know, and and I know it's so so funny. Like when I started working on this episode and just Rosewood in general, just to be able to have a scene on a procedural that's just about character. I was just like, are you seriously? I could just, it's just a character scene? It's like, really? That, I can do that? <laughs> and so it's just so rewarding to, you know, to kind of work on this episode that it is a cop show, but there was so much heart and so much character. And I was, you know, just kind of given the reins just to kind of to do what I do the way that I do it. Um, but still within the confines of, of, of a Rosewood episode. Right. But I think that's what makes Rosewood you know, such a relatable show and, and and you got a great cast and yeah, fantastic. Yes. Um, but I think that because you spend so much time on character, that's how I think an audience person member like me gets engaged. Yeah, and you know, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, we kinda really believe that, you know, if we could get America to fall in love with the Rosewood family, you know, then we're we're golden. You know, and um and, and really adding the element, the, I remember reading the pilot, and I told Taz, like, one of the things I, I think what's really sold me on wanting to work on the show is when Rosa kind of reveals to be, a, you know, his medical issues, that he was born premature, then he has, you know, things with something going on with his ear, and he's got something going on with his heart, and so I love that. I mean, it's, it seems on the surface like an insignificant thing, because we're not going to be going to his health issues every episode, but it really does shape this character and all the other characters around him. I mean, the, the spot father-son relationship, you know, the foundation of it was Rosewood's illness. Right. And each perspective Which you don't find out until episode seven. Right. You know, and so that's, and so it's like, you know, let's use, let's look at a father-son relationship, but through the prism of this character that is different, you know, that has all these health issues going on that he has to manage and take care of every day. Right. And then, and then finding a way to kind of tie that into his guilt about this parents' divorce and all of that, which is really kind of cool. When I, once it finally, all. Oh, came together right because um, that's the thing with any of these shows like you want to use the special magic of that each, each, each individual show right and if you are listening to this podcast and haven't seen Marquis episode you should go if you haven't DVR'd it or, you know, I think you can maybe watch it on Fox.com yeah. Fox.com yeah. um, you can do that what episode number is it? 7 right? yeah episode 7 what's the title of it? Uh, quadriplegia and quality turn so you should definitely you can watch that and then listen to the podcast yes again yeah I'm sorry <laughs> So you guys should be in the know. Yeah, yeah. no. Um, they should watch it anyway. It's a show. Um, but uh, just in case you're wondering what references we're throwing yes. <laughs> about the show. Um, okay, so we, we talked about the episode in the show and uh, sort of your process in terms of writing the episode, which I think is hopefully helpful. Um, yeah. Maybe we can talk about generally in terms of writing. Um, you had mentioned like going off because I know every writers' room is different and every showrunner is different in how they interact. You know, sometimes you break up in the season uh, and then everyone just gets assigned an episode, and sometimes you're all pitching and then you kind of you know uh, find one that you're passionate about and kind of go that way. Yeah. What do you I'll order for you. Maybe we can start off right at the beginning of of the show when you break. When you got the job on Rosewood mm -hmm. uh, and you started breaking down the season, uh, at what point do you get an episode, do you sign an episode, and at what point do you go off and come back 
and that sort of thing. Well, the, what we did the first couple of days, we just kind of all met as a group um, and just kind of generally talked about the show. Um, and people, you know, if they had ideas or pitches that they came up with in between when they interviewed with Todd and when we first got started on the first day, um, they pitched those. And so we just, you know, put, put everything and anything on the board. Um, and that, that was really the first couple of days. Um, and then after that, uh, first week, we all kind of, we broke up into two separate rooms and we broke episodes two and three at the same time. Um, so we just ingested into different smaller writers' rooms. And so when it went, once that was done, everyone just kind of, you know, went to Todd and pitched what they might want for their episodes separately. And then, you know, he was like, yay or nay. And so that's kind of how people got assigned. And so we didn't really know for sure, like, how he was going to assign episodes. So, like, for me, I think I was the first out of the lower level writers that got assigned something. And that's just because I, I, had, I was passionate about an idea, had a take on it, and I pitched it to him. And it was literally just a casual conversation. Conversation. Um, and then, you know, more people started doing that and everyone started getting their episodes. Um, and some, some people, you know, had writers room, full writers' rooms, others had partial, some really didn't have, you know, rooms like myself and just had, you know, different separate conversations with people. And right. so, Todd, it was, it's very kind of into letting the writer kind of dictate their own process. That's great. Um, even to the point where it's like, you know, if you want to, like sometimes I'll go right around the corner at Coffee Bean. And I'll tell the assistant, hey, you need me? I'm around the corner of Coffee Bean. I'll be back in a couple of hours. And I'll just write outside the office. Right. Um, and obviously, you know, when you're on script or an outline, you're free to work from home, which I do. Um, but he's very into just like, as long as you produce and turn in good work, right. he's flexible about the process. Right. Now, that's something that I think a lot of writers who aren't as familiar with the TV process don't quite get. Uh, in terms of deadlines and being able to produce right. um, even things you may not necessarily agree with, you know, in terms of getting notes on something mm -hmm. and having to rewrite your episode in a way right. that you don't agree with, but your showrunner says this is what it has to be. Um, how do you, maybe you haven't had to deal with this, uh, but uh, maybe we can delve into, maybe you have, or maybe we can talk about how would you, like if you were to get a note or notes on an episode that you completely did not agree with on an episode that you had written. Um, how do you take those notes that you don't agree with and implement them into Yeah, I mean, I haven't had that experience uh, necessarily on, on Rosewood, but I have had that experience on other shows, and, and, it is, and it is tough, and sometimes it's before you even get a network note, you're just given an episode. I mean, on Rosewood and on House and Battle Creek, I had the opportunity to pitch an idea um, that I was passionate about and to, and, to, and to write that idea or some, or some version of it. Other shows, that's not the case. You just get assigned an episode. And, you know, there's this, you know, expression amongst writers sometimes you, you might hear. It's like, you find something in the episode to love. And right. It, and it sounds terrible. It sounds defeatist. But it's true. You know, that, you know, you just find something about that episode to latch onto. Because if you don't, the, the episode's not going to be good. Right. The work's not going to be good because you're not going to be passionate about it. And, you know, you spend a lot of times on these episodes. So you have to find something to latch on to. Um, you have to find something in that idea that you don't like and put your own spin on it. And that's the thing too, I think people don't understand when you you staff is that, yes, you have to color inside the lines. You have to write within the confines and the structure of that show. But within that, 
what color you choose, how dark that color is, you know, all of that can be up to you. Right. And so an episode should have your kind of own kind of imprint or watermark on it. So the same is said for when you get a note. I might, you know, have to write, you know, a purple unicorn right. into my episode. Right. That, and I was like, I don't like unicorns, but maybe there's a cool way that the uh, unicorn is being introduced. Maybe there's some symbolism about that unicorn. Maybe a character looks at that unicorn and gets something out of it that I think is really cool and interesting. Well, you just so you answered just, a line about purple unicorn. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That thing was what came to mind. Yeah. And so, so you have to find a way to find something about it that you love. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, but it behooves you to find a silver lining in there somewhere. Right. Um, and sometimes you're like, oh, I don't agree with the note, but the rest of the episode, there are parts of this episode that I absolutely love. And so it's a job, you're paid to do it, suck it up and do the work. Right. I mean, ultimately that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Just do the work, that's what you're paid there to do. Right. Um, how did you um, land on Rosewood? I mean, in terms of what was the process? Uh, it was kind of a standard process. Like my agent submitted me and um, I got the meeting with Todd and I met with uh, Todd and uh, Albert Page, who's our, our executive from Temple Hill, which is the um, production company behind our show, and just had a really good meeting. Um, and it was weird because it's like we all kind of talked about our, our, meeting, our interviews with Todd after the fact that we all had the same kind of impression. I was like, he's a really cool guy, really down to earth, and it'd be great to work for him. And it's just like, I want, I want to work for this guy. And I fell in love with the show even more during that interview. Um, and, and, and I'd never had that, re that experience really where it's just like, even on the drive home, it's just like, I kind of want to work, I really want to work for this guy. Right. You know what I mean? So, yeah, so it was just kind of a basic process, you know, for me. And then um, I emailed, and he and I kept, kept in touch the next couple of days after that. Um, and then I got the job maybe a couple of days after the interview. Wow. So it was, pretty, it was well, fairly quick. No, my, my dad, my what are some of the questions that, that you've been, maybe not necessarily specific to that here. Rosewood uh, uh, showrunner meeting, executive meeting, what are some of the questions, that, typical questions you can ask in, in those types yeah. of meetings? Yeah. Oh, typical questions. Well, I mean, a lot of times they might ask, like, you know, what you know, what, what you responded to the most out of the material. I mean, you should always have that kind of in the back of your head. It's like, you know, what you what you really responded to the most and why, because sometimes that will kind of tell them, like, what your perspective is. And what, you know, if you were on staff, what your perspective is on the show. Because, like, when they're building a staff, they are building a puzzle. And everybody in, in, in the best scenario has a different piece to that puzzle. So, you know, your perspective on the script and the material kind of will help illuminate what that perspective is going to be. Um, and sometimes they'll ask you about past experiences, like, you know, if you have a lot of experience in the room or if not, like, what you prefer. Um, you know, a room, not room, or a hybrid, a mix of the two. Um, and you know, and then they ask the questions about your background and history, because because sometimes that becomes important too. If you have like certain, you know, skill sets or a background that might be useful for the show. Um, but a lot of times, it's just a casual conversation. It's just them trying to see. Um, if they want to sit in a room with you for eight hours, because they already know you can write, which is why you got the why you got the interview. Um, but yeah, but you talk a lot about the show and, and like in your perspective on the show and and what you really what you liked about it. And for a pilot that's like the like Rosewood, um, where it wasn't an established show already, or even like Battle Creek, um, you're just going off a pilot script, right? Yeah. Right. So unlike House, which had been on for a long time, right? Um, so when you uh, went out for Rosewood, because you were already a, a, a produced writer, I mean you had episodes of House and uh, about Creek on the air. 
did you have an original sample, or did you just go off of what you had written? No, no, he read a pilot. He read okay. an original pilot, um, and then and then you know he called around, you know, and asked for recommendations, and he says, yeah, this person, this person, you know, spoke highly of you, so that that you know that helped make the decision, and so um, so yeah, I mean that's what they that's what they do. I mean your your reputation. Um, Amongst your colleagues is is useful, right? You know? Speaking of which, uh, I have to mention that uh, Liz Alper says Marquis Jackson is the best. Please tell him I adore him. Uh, <laughs> I tell him you're the best, and uh, Liz Alper adores. Oh, the feeling is mutual. I love Liz. Um, and Liz Alper used to be David Shore's assistant, yes. and now she's a writer on uh, staff writer on Chicago Fire. Yes. So uh, yeah. Anyway, talking about. Oh yeah, no, nice, nice that way. No, yeah. I mean, so yes, yeah, so that. Um, yeah, so you read a pilot and you know called around and you know asked people about me and so um, took a chance and brought me on board. Oh, that's great. Um, and so uh, for for those who may not be as familiar with the TV sort of hierarchy, uh, there's staff writers, story editors, executive story editors, co-producers, producer, right. writing producer, co-EP, EP. Right. Uh, it's a whole chain. Um, at what level? Um, are you able to develop your own material? I was having a conversation. Ah, yeah, so I know for me, it'd be next year at the co-producer level, I'll be allowed to do development and there's, you know, different clauses involved with that. Um, and, and a lot of times, the way that they structure these deals now is that the first year of a new show, they really want you to focus on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, unless you have an overall with them, um, they really just want you to kind of focus on the show. That's kind of been the new, well, not, I guess not new anymore, but like the last handful of years, that's been the, the norm, you know, um, and, you know that's fine, you know. So, so you just work on the show and you know develop your own stuff on your own, like, like you should be doing anyway, and right. just moving forward. Yeah. yeah. And so, have you been? focused on TV for your pretty much your whole career, like when you started becoming interested in, in writing. Was it all about TV or was it you know, dabbling features? I've heard people yeah, have so right, Yeah, so far it's just been focused mainly on TV. I do want to segue into uh, doing features as well. Um, but no, but primarily, yeah, it's been all, it's been all TV. So even when you first started, you were focused on I want to write for television. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. That's that. Yeah. Even since I was a little kid, I mean, it's so funny. Like, um, I can't remember if I mentioned the story in the last last time I spoke with you, but um, yeah, I've always been interested in writing TV and wrote it and was writing spec scripts and notebook paper and pencil before I realized you could even do it as a job. But, right. You know. So yeah, TV's been in my blood for a very long time. What were some of your favorite shows? Oh gosh, when I was growing up, a different world was my favorite show okay. of all time, and I remember it was season five. And he broke up Dwayne and Whitley, and I was hot. I was apoplectic. I was like, "What are the writers doing? I can't understand why they're doing that." So I wrote five episodes in notebook, paper, and pencil. I remember that? Putting them back together because I felt like someone in the universe needs to fix the problem. So why not me? Right. How old were you at that time? I was thirteen. Nice. You still have those? I still have them. Nice. Yeah, because they're they're a reminder. Because that kid, you know, at thirteen, wrote because he felt like he had something to say, and he didn't care, you know, what the industry thought he didn't care if anyone saw those scripts or thought they were worthwhile he was passionate about it and so I keep those as a reminder that even though I'm a grown-up now and I'm in the entertainment business and there's the business aspect of it there has to be a blend between the kid who wrote on notebook paper and pencil and the adult who writes on the MacBook that both of them have to exist at the same time 
in order for me to really be happy as I do the business side of the business. Have you looked back on the script just to kind of flip through? Oh, it's been a while since I've looked at them. I mean, some, for me, some sure. I guess just really knowing where they are, yeah. you know, is enough. I haven't looked at those things in a while. Were they written in like prose or did you actually have No, no, they were written before. like I had like, you know, character lines and dialogue lines and action lines. I didn't, I, you know, I just, I don't know. I mean, that's just how I did. I had never seen a script, a script before, but I just somehow knew that they were dialogue lines and action lines. I don't know. I can't explain it. It's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you were born to write the show? Uh, yeah. Then I broke a, uh, yeah, a whole season, two seasons actually, of the show. So yeah. So I was like, yeah, this is what you were meant to do. So those years I was an assistant, it's like, you got to stick this out because like, this is what you want to do. Yeah. Now, uh, what, what are you watching now? Gosh, you know, I watch a little bit of everything, you know, from the, the your, you know, your guilty pleasures of, um, you know, Game of Thrones when it's on, but like, you know, Flash I love on the CW, which is a really, really good show, um, watching Heroes, I watch a lot of, you know, genre stuff, um, if, when I can find it, because there's not always a lot of it on, um, Quantico, I really like, um, starting to get into Daredevil, and I still have like a couple of episodes of Mad Men left to watch, um, Yes, yeah, so I watch a little bit of a little bit of everything, um, and then I have like tons and tons of stuff stacked. Like there's episodes of Manhattan that I need to get to, need to catch up on the Americans. So yes, I have like my DVR is always like down to six hours because <laughs> I have to make my rounds. Now, how? Uh, uh, what kind of stuff? I mean, you're obviously medical cop drama. God, I mean, that's sort of your, what your career has been. Right. Um, in a, in the future, what sort of stuff would you like to do? I mean, if you could you know, write anything in the world, what kind of stuff? Maybe, maybe I could phrase it differently. If yeah. you could write for any show, past or present, what show would you, other than uh, Perfect World, would you Yeah, wow, that's, that's a tough one. Or a different one. Um, I think the Mad Men would have been, you know, would have been a show I would have loved to have been on. Um, because I just love the nuance of it. And I think, you know, I wrote a spec for Mad Men years ago um, that I did, you know, did very well with. And, you know, but I think for me... Like for a contest or a contest? Well, no, I just wrote it just because, you know, because back then, um, you, they were reading specs over pilots. Okay, got it. Um, but I think I found, you know, it helped me find my voice as a writer on that show. And I think the spec came out as good as it was because... You know, internally, I, I like to write with a lot of subtext and a lot of nuance, and so that's one show for sure. Um, season one of Heroes, um, Game of Thrones presently, or Breaking Bad for sure. Um, you know, just who would want to have worked on that show? Yeah, who would want to? Um, I mean, you worked with Vince Gilligan, but who yeah, yeah. I mean, it was so funny. Battle Creek. I never really got a chance to meet Vince Gilligan. Uh, he was really busy with Better Call Saul, but. Um, yeah, I think off the top of my head, those would be um, the shows I would think about too. And actually, The Flash too. It's just such a fun show, um, you know, to kind of watch. And I would imagine fun to kind of break too, because like the superhero shows, genre shows, it's like they yes, they have their own set of worlds and rules, but there's so much. The sky's the limit, you know what I mean? Sometimes with those shows, in a really, really cool way. Yeah. Now, are you a comic book fan? You know, I don't really read comic books, but I like, you know, sci-fi kind of related shows. You know, like, you know, the Battlestar Galactica's of the world. I wish there were, I wish there were more Battlestar Galactica's on the air right now. Yeah. 
um, just really smart, you know, and edgy and gritty sci-fi shows. Right. You know, because that combination you don't always get. Yeah, I mean, I think, especially now in the golden age of television, quote unquote, um, great genre shows are really just great shows set in, you know, these genres. Right. Uh, again, like Walking Dead is not necessarily a show about zombies. Right. It's a show about, you know, sort of these these people that are surviving and facing well, you know, the sort of darkness. And that's, and that's the great thing about when a creator, when a staff is able to kind of really hone into something that, and a relatable idea that you place in an unusual setting. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, because what comes to mind is the, now of course, the entire run about Star Galactic, but specifically the occupation when they found new, you know, a home and they settled on what they called New Caprica and then the Cylons find them and occupied them and so they become you know, these this strange invading forces occupying their home, which is so it was so kind of reminiscent of what was going on currently. You know, with a, with the you know with the United States being in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and the conflicts that ensued there, and so I think it's just brilliant when the writers are able to kind of do that. Uh, another show, Doctor Who. If I could write even just one episode of Doctor Who, that would make me happy. <laughs> yeah, you're not the first person to mention that to me. Doctor Who is one of those two shows that I've never really gotten into, and I don't know. I've never really watched it like through and through, so I've never really. I can't say I've given it a fair chance. But Doctor Who is one of those shows that everybody raves about. You know, and it's so funny. I I caught on to it late, but I, and this is after everyone telling me, it's like, oh, Marky, you gotta watch Doctor Who, you'll love Doctor Who. I was like, all right, I'll, I'll watch it. And so I watched, I started with the Matt Smith Doctor, so not the current Doctor, but the one before. And then I just, on Netflix, I just watched a, a lot of them, just in a row, because I was just, I was into it. And again, it's another one of those shows where, yeah, it's about this guy traveling through time in this little telephone box that's bigger on the inside, but it is really about, his connection to the people he's traveling with, his connection to the people he's trying to save in that episode, and just the loneliness and isolation he has when you think he should be on top of the world because he gets to live forever and gets to travel everywhere and do whatever he wants and how isolating that can be. So they find a very great way of making that character who's so unique, so relatable all at the same time. Right. And it's another show that has like a lot of nuance. A lot of nuance and a lot of just kind of subtext. It's just a really well done show. Right. Okay, I mean, maybe I should give it a chance. Because to me, from not having really experienced Doctor Who, it just looks like sort of a campy sci-fi about a guy who wears a scarf, gets into a phone booth, and travels through time. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, sort of like a, I don't know. Well, but it's one of those shows that could get super campy, and there are episodes that are more campy than others, but um, that's Stephen Moffat. Like, when he's, you know, firing on all cylinders, there's no nothing better. Ah, Sherlock. That's another show. show. Yeah, which, yeah, is also run by Stephen Moffat's BBC America, and that show's brilliant. Mm -hmm. It's just brilliant. You know, Benedict Cumberbatch and um, Martin Freeman, absolutely amazing. And just the dialogue is just so eloquent and just so nuanced. It's just it's a really well done show as well. Uh, but again, one episode, that's all I need, and I would be satisfied. <laughs> I gotcha. Um, okay, so uh, how many episodes is. Uh, Rosewood uh, are you guys set to do? Uh, we are set to do 22. 22, you got the full 22. Yeah, we got the full, yeah, we got our back nine. That's excellent. Um, and so, how long is this? Is that 40 weeks for you guys? Are you guys contracted for 40 weeks? Uh, like yeah, mine's, I think it was 20, and then they just extended me for like all produced episodes, so they don't count the number of weeks, just however many weeks it takes gotcha. to, to produce all the episodes, that's, that's where I'm at for. Gotcha. Yeah. 
Um, and um, you guys shoot in the Manhattan Studios, and it's worth it's set in Miami. Yes. Uh, but you don't shoot most of it in Miami. Right. Um, so because of that, uh, how, how much time do you spend on set as, you know, the writer of your episode? You know, do you spend, because again, some shows, the writers, even staff writers will go to set and work on their episode, and some shows they don't. Um, as, as an ESE, uh, for your episode, like how much time did you spend away from the writer's room, away from other scripts, on set? Oh uh, no, on our show, we're on set the entire eight days. Oh, okay. And we're, you go to every, and even prior to that, you go to every prep meeting. Um, you know, for the eight days of prep, at some point, like um, I actually left my production meeting and ended, and then I came here for you know for this for this interview. So, I uh, say, so yeah, and then you're involved, you know, in post, however much you want to be. If you want to go to your own mix, you can go to your mix. And so, you no, know, you're you're there producing your episode. Even like actually, right now we're shooting episode eleven written by one of our staff writers and she's on set producing her episode and engaging with actors and collaborating with them and the director on set. So it's really a great experience when you're allowed to do that. That's great. Now, um, on, on your show, because uh, I spoke with Jeffrey Lieber from uh, NCIS New Orleans and he had mentioned to me something that I thought was interesting that no one else has told me before in terms of uh, the way he likes to bring a staff together, where he likes, you know, four or five really talented writers, a handful of really talented, brilliant writers, a couple of writers who are good, but also really excellent on set, and a couple of writers who are really good in post, and so he has all of these areas covered, so uh, not to say that you couldn't, uh, uh, you know, have, you know, each writer going to say each writer in post doing these things, but you have a, a, a top person that can fill in on all these positions so that you know, allows him to sort of oversee everything and doesn't have to, he doesn't have to micromanage. Right. Um, how does that work on like a show like Rosie? Yeah, I think the way that's, you know, Todd, he, he doesn't break it up in terms of like, you know, post stage or, you know, in terms of writing. Um, but yeah, but he has like, you know, a couple of co-EPs, you know, that will go down the coast um, in lieu of him sometimes if he needs to focus on something else. And so, um, but they're also just talented all the way around, right. you know. Um, so he you know, kind of sat his way differently. I think for him, he just is, he wanted to make sure that he had people that could bring like the levity and the comedy and, and kind of punch up scenes that, that they're, they're lighter and funnier. Um, he has other writers that bring a lot of heart and you know, I kind of think I, you know, I bring a lot of that. Um, so no, I think he just wants to staff the room with just really talent, good talented people that were good people. Right. You know? Um, from the point where the, your episode is broken, um, or where, at least where you're sent off to write your episode, what's the turnaround time like? Ooh, the turnaround time really depends on when your prep date is. Um, what's a ballpark? At best, if you could get 10 days, that's ideal. I think I had maybe eight for this one, and I think. The one I just finished, I just finished, I'm actually shooting, gonna start shooting episode 12 on Monday. I had like seven days, uh, six, seven days for episode 12. And so, because I- Is that to turn in uh, a first draft? Or that's, that's, a, that's to turn in like a first draft. Okay, so then that'll go to the network, that'll go to yeah. the runner. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, so that's just the first, that's just the first draft. Yeah, because I rolled from, you know, episode seven, which you guys saw Wednesday, into episode 12. I rolled from one right into the other, so it was kind of quick. Yeah. 
That, that's the thing about TV. It's just like a moving train. You just no, it, it is a factory. You are, you know, putting out product, and so it's just one. It's an assembly line. It's really it is. Yeah. And so you, you gotta just keep up. you have to keep up with production, and you have to keep up with oh, those yeah. deadlines. And so um, there's a little flexibility, but at the end of the day, it preps when it preps, it shoots when it shoots. Right. And have you ever gotten to the point in an episode where you're, the train is moving and you have to turn it in, and yet you're still sort of not. 100% satisfied with it, and yet still, you know you have to turn it in. You make it as good as you can with the time you have, and just pass it on, and how do you... Well, here's the thing, it's like, because even if you, you know, get it exactly where you want it, you know, I don't know, I don't even know that any writer feels like they ever get a script exactly where they want it, that there's no room for improvement ever, but it is going to go through other changes. It is going to go through an internal process with your your colleagues and your showrunner, then the studio network will have their say, and then the producing director and the line producer and the actual director and the actors will have so much input. Um, but for me, I generally always turn in something that is that I think is good and that I'm happy with. Could it be better? Yeah, absolutely, you know, but I, it's always something that I'm happy to show and I think it's good. Um, I've never run into a situation where I turned in a script and I was worried that it wasn't good or wasn't my best work. Um, yeah, that, I've never I've never had that experience. There might, there might be a scene that I was like, oh, that could be better. I don't know what that is yet, but, you know, I'll have a couple of fix for it, but I'm not sure what that scene is. But the script as a whole, I've always kind of been comfortable with. Have you ever... Have you I'm assuming you've written a feature or two in your repertoire at some point. Mm -hmm. How does that thought process, or how does your work process differ writing TV versus writing a feature? Well, in terms of just the amount of time, or just in terms of like... In terms of your thought process, because I think, uh, it's, you know, obviously writing a feature is sort of isolated. Right. You're kind of just on your own devices, on your own time frame, There's, you know, unless you're, I guess... You made a pitch and you have a specific deadline, but still, even then, you're off just, you have three months to write it, or right. whatever it happens to be, whereas... Well, I mean, it is different, because you, I mean, when you're writing TV, I mean, it is very deadline-oriented, and you have, you know, so many deadlines you need to meet, and things you need to, you know, you need to get to your boss, whether it's a story area, or outline, or an or act or two of your actual script. So it does kind of, it's so funny, we were talking about this the other day when one of our co-EPs that when you're crunched for time, it does make you, you, you tend to over, you don't overthink as much because you have to get it done and you trust your instincts more and you and you just go for it, you know, it's like, no, this is the right way to do this scene, let's write this scene this way, let's not overthink it because I don't have the time to overthink it. Right. So I think, you know, just the nature of that, it is kind of the difference between kind of like being in basic training and being on the front lines. I guess right. that's the only analogy I can think of right now. But uh, but yeah, having that deadline and trying to meet that is 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 key. And the other thing too is like you have so many constraints in terms of like page length and making sure your acts aren't too long and making sure you have enough of certain characters. And so that's the other thing too is that you your your writing process is different because you have so many other things to manage. And not to say you don't have to manage how, how often you see characters and make sure it's balanced when you write a feature. It's just different when you have commercial breaks. It's different when you have you know when you lose you can't it can't be sixty pages. It can only be fifty. Maybe really 48 because right. we have commercials and we have to take out an extra scene because we have to make room for an empire promo that the network wants us to do. Right. Um, and then you have to make changes for production, you know, which is different than if you're writing a feature, you know, just for yourself or 
on your own, you know, because it's, it, and actually, when you're a writer on TV, as I'm sure most people know, you're actually more involved in the process than when you're writing features, you know, or having been paid to write a feature, so to speak. What's the best part about, excuse me, what's the best part about being a television writer? I think for me, being able to follow a character from week to week, and to being able to see them watch and grow and change. I know when I was younger, I think that's where I kind of lean towards drama more because I like to see the evolution of characters over time. Versus like sitcoms, like the traditional ones, like Friends or Everybody Loves Raymond, well those characters reset at the end of every episode. You know, whereas like there's growth and change and, you know, She's saying the right word, but nuance with, with dramas that you don't always see. So I think for me, that's why that's why I love writing dramas more, and just and just peeling back the layers on those characters. Like over time, that's the, the other benefit over features, because like features, even if it's a trilogy, you're learning about that character and getting a window into their life. You know, two hours at a time, every other year, every three years. Right. Whereas when it's a you know a TV show, you have 22 opportunities. You know, in a given season to learn something new. About that character. Now, um, oh, when you were first a staff writer, mm-hmm. versus now as uh, an executive story editor, obviously having you know been promoted multiple times in different shows, what is something that you had wish you had known when you first got a job oh, writing wow. that you know now? That's a really good question. You know, the thing that comes to mind. I think feeling comfortable in your own skin, you know what I mean? Because I know the first time around when I was going down on set, you know, just it was different and, and a little awkward. I mean, it's different when you're an assistant striving toward this goal for six or seven years or however long it is, and then you get it, and then it's like, wow, okay, this is what it is, and this is how, what it feels like. And so I don't know, I think for me, the how I engage actors is just different because I know more and I know how to engage them more and I know how to explain things you know to them in a way that you know they receive it just better um, I think I'm more confident as a writer for sure and I just have a better sense of just story and structure you know than I did you know before I don't know I, I, in terms of like handling people and being on the staff I was pretty savvy you know as a staff writer I've had worked at CAA and I've had so many other experiences yeah because you had been a writer yeah I've been a writer assistant I've been a PA on numerous shows I kind of knew in terms of like how to conduct yourself on a staff I kind of knew all of that. I think the main thing, you know, this may or may not be answering your question, but just being confident and being feeling comfortable in your own skin. No, you know, and, and kind of owning your existence and your presence down on the set, um, and just being able to handle things. And, that, and the great thing about being on on Rosewood is that you know Todd kind of trusts us to handle things as they come. You know, we don't have to call him for every little line change. We don't have to call. We call him for the big stuff, certainly. But you know, when you're on set, he trusts you to handle the problem and to talk things out with the with the actors and be and be collaborative, and to not and to not fear that, and to know when. To, I think this might be the thing: is to know. When to push back. When to say, like, you know, that I can change. Know that, you know, we shouldn't because of this, 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 and this. Or, you know, let's talk to Todd about this. I think that's the other thing, too. It's just knowing when when to say no and when to say yes. And, um, 
how did you get your first rep? Was it when you were, uh, were you still uh, an assistant at the time? You got your first rep? No, I actually got my first script when I, when I got staffed. Oh no, my, your, your first rep. Oh, oh, for, oh, Andrew, yeah. yeah, no, I was actually in the Disney, pro I, got, I just got into the Disney program. Um, and so me getting into the Disney program was kind of how I got my, my foot in the door professionally and getting an agent, they all kind of happened together. Okay. So I applied to the Disney program with one spec and then I wrote another one that I sent to my boss at the time, or my old boss at the time, who was a client at CAA. And he's like, well, are you going to send this to Rob Keneally, who was my old boss at CAA? And he's like, yeah, I was going to send it to him, but if you send it to him, he'll read it faster because it's coming from you. Right. And so he says that, that was my plan B in case I didn't get to the program, but they both kind of kind of converged together. So it was just this natural, organic kind of thing. And we have a lot of questions about uh, the differences and the working relationship between an agent and a manager. Um, and we, I, I talk to a lot of agents and managers about it, but from a client's perspective, what is it like in the working relationship between an agent and a manager? You know, I think for me, you know, a manager is really there. They're more hands-on in terms of like developing material with the client. You know, they're more hands-on with giving notes on scripts, um, all outlines, or just story areas even. You know, so I think it's, it's really more of a grassroots type of relationship, creatively speaking. Not to say that your agents can't do that or that they don't, but I think it's just it's more intensive and more intimate, if that's you know, is even a good word, um, with your manager versus your agent. Now, are you, how often now that you're um, on a show, um, when you're on a show, how often do you talk to your agent or manager? Yeah, I think for me, like, not a lot, you know, um, I think that that a change moving forward, especially when you kind of get into the development, but, you know, when you're working, you're working, you know, if I have questions or if I, you know, want a meeting set, I'll certainly talk to them, but um, I think for me, it's not, not like I talk to them every week, right, you know. Yeah, because I mean, you have a job. Yeah, yeah, because I'm working and I'm focused on that, and and that's kind of what what I'm doing, and they know that, and um, you know, check in from time to time. But yeah, it's not like I talk to them every week. Um, and I guess uh, I wanted to ask you in terms of have you ever had an agent or manager that you didn't feel was representing you in the way you wanted them to represent you, and how did you sort of tackle that? Uh, I think, think you've ever had that. I mean, well, I think. Me, uh, one of the reasons why I went with CAA because it was such a big agency is that there's always that fear of, you know, as a baby writer or a new writer getting lost in such a big place like that. Um, but I think for me, I came in through my old boss, you know, and just knowing him and knowing his character and having put my time in on his desk as his assistant, um, I kind of call it multiple layers of accountability because I knew if I felt like I, there was a problem that I could come to Rob and we could talk it out. I knew that if I had a problem, you know, I could talk to my manager and he would help me figure out a game plan. You know, I've had a problem, I could talk to one of my other uh, mentors that are also clients there, upper level writers. And so I just, you know, I call it multiple layers of accountability, you know, so I never really had um, fear that, you know, that I wouldn't have enough outlets to fix a problem if I, if I had one. Um, you know, and that's ultimately, you know, kind of, you know, what you do is like, you know, you go in and you, and you talk it out and you work it through. That's smart, actually. That's really smart. Um, you, you hear stories all the time about somebody unhappy with a rep and trying to decide if they should hire the rep before getting a new rep. Yeah, and it's and it's and it's and it's and it, and it's, it sounds so simplistic. You know, like you know, firing a rep or hiring a rep or who should you go with? But like your career is at stake, and and that's your livelihood. And 
and your ability to provide for yourself and your family and to live your life the way that you would hope, you know. So it's like it's it's a big deal who you who you who your reps are and the, and the job that they're doing for you or not. Right. Now I know you got your start at the, with the ABC program, mm -hmm. um, and I, I've heard like diversity is getting better, but at the same time I've heard some terrible stories. Meaning, um, like showrunners being encouraged to have diverse staff, which is great, but then I've heard issues where they almost expect writers, like they hire a writer for diversity reasons, getting some sort of a, you know, like the ABC staff, you know, uh, if they hire you, they, they don't pay your salary because ABC pays it. Right. But I've heard other stories where, like, CBS will, or NBC will pay half of a writer's salary, but the moment they stop, the uh, the showrunner all of a sudden goes, oh we're gonna bring someone else in yeah. you know stories like that um, your work you know Cows Battle Creek uh, uh, Rosewood so you may not have faced some of those sort of but you know those issues where diversity was possibly a hindrance uh, no but maybe you've heard of stuff like oh no I've both both I've heard about it and I've experienced it you know I've, I've heard I've had friends that were on a show for one season and then you know once that year was up they were let go and a new new face was brought in at that slot because they were free right um, you know for me you know I was a staff writer three times and it was easier to staff me as a diversity person because I was free versus just hire me as a regular writer because I'm good on the page and so I think diversity can be um, useful and obviously it was for me but I also think on the flip end on the backside it can be a hindrance as well because that's all you you're seeing that you know you're not you know I mean I can't tell you how many jobs I lost out to because I, and it's the comment I would get back oh because they need to hire you know a woman in the room which fine if you need women hire women but like it just boggled my mind like why did it come down to me or her why wasn't it why wasn't it me and her you know it's like why it's just it was just really frustrating to kind of be seen as a box that could be checked versus who I am on the page and you know it's just and then also too sometimes when you're on that this hasn't happened necessarily to me but like the expectation they don't expect you to be able to, to write really oh yeah and I've actually had friends you know that they were told oh, you know, people that come out of programs you know but, but can they write I mean really because the expectation is like if you could really write you would need a program if you could really write you would need that extra help so certainly there must be something wrong with your skill as a writer if you needed the help and so so there it's both you know but I know other people that went through programs and had none of the above happen to them and so it's just, it's just you just never know what hand you're gonna get dealt but I think it can be a blessing and it can be a curse you know because it, it can be an uphill battle that you have to fight over it's like hey yeah I got in this way you know in lieu of having an uncle or an aunt or a father who's influential in the business that just made a call and got me a job I do have something to bring to the table and sometimes it's just it's an extra hurdle that you have to go through I mean more so than normal I think anytime you're a new person on the staff you have to prove yourself but sometimes I think as a, as a minority writer you know if you're ethnicity or you know gender you have to work even harder sometimes you know and that might people might not admit that or like hearing that but it is true it just is what's the breakdown of the Rosewood staff? Rosewood is probably not probably it is the most diverse staff I've ever been on in my entire life um, in terms of like being a professional writer 
So there are three um, black people on staff. We had two Latinas, and then we have uh, four white guys, four white males on the show. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty diverse, um, which is great because we have a diverse cast. You know, we have you know Morris Chestnut, and we have um, Jana Lee Ortiz as our lead. Right. So it's nice to kind of have that other perspective. And the thing I like about Todd is like he didn't just hire us just because of our ethnicity. He knew that we would bring some of that to the table, but he just hired smart writers. You know that he liked and that he thought would be good for the show. Um, because Rosewood, you know, was, was one thing that I really respect about the pilot script is that Rose is just a guy who happens to be black. He right. could be Korean, he could be Japanese, he could be Hawaiian. He's never mentioned. He's just a guy. This is just a family who happens to be black. And so that's what I love about the show and the script. We don't necessarily have to or need to hang a lantern on it. And Via is just a really smart cop. You know what I mean? She's not, you know, a, a lag, and that's what I, just, I love about it. Right. And, you know, like a show like Blackish or a show like Fresh Off the Boat, you know, they play on, you know, the, gen, the, the racial stereotypes, make jokes and this and that. And it, it can be funny. Right. Um, but I really love shows like Rosewood where it's not mentioned at all. Yeah. You know, they're just, they're just a guy. And that's what I like about it. I mean, so we're not, you know, we're just writing dialogue. You know, we're writing, and I love that he's incredibly capable and smart, and we're just, and we're writing him that way. We're not throwing slang and more chestnuts in out. If he decides he wants to throw a little flair on it, here. Is that throwing out slang? Yeah, I mean that's just you know that's just you know more to put his own spin to certain things, you know. But it's always authentic to who the character is and authentic to who more chestnut is. Yeah. You know, and so and, and and if we ever did that, I know more to push back on that as he should. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, that's not what the show is. That's not who he is, and that's not what we should be putting out there into the atmosphere. You know, it's out there enough, so right. <laughs> we don't need to add to it. Absolutely. Um, so, um, talk about the future. What kind of stuff uh, now you're starting to develop, when you start to be able to develop, um, what what kind of game plan do you think you'll be looking at? Uh, I think for me, I mean, just really kind of, you know, digging into you know, certain specific ideas that I like. I mean, I like, you know, character-heavy, you know, kind of issue-oriented stuff and just kind of looking at, you know, period or not, um, and just kind of building out more ideas on that process and building a relationship with the executives and kind of, you know, and kind of trying to get a sense of what 20th Century Fox and what Fox as a network, you know, kind of what, they're, what, what they'll be looking for in the future moving forward and what kind of projects I'll be interested in, in writing that might meet what their needs are. Um, so really, for me, I'm just really focusing on just getting to know, you know, the executives other than, like, a voice on the other end of a conference call giving us notes. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think and I think they have a good sense of who I am as a writer, which I think is great, but it's always good to kind of, just to kind of, to get to know them all individually, one-on-one. Um, I've worked with 20th before, um, you know, on Lone Star, so I have a good relationship with some of the executives there, and so, yeah, so, um, so yeah, it's just a matter of just that building, building those relationships um, to kind of help kind of, you know, usher in some development next year or year after. Yeah. That's definitely something that, you know, as, as a writer, you can't just rest on your laurels because you never know when the job you're on is going to end, whether, you know, the show is canceled or whatever. Um, but at the same time, you have to be present and focused on the work that you're doing now and not 
let that slide in with thoughts of other things. Right, right. Yeah, you, yeah, you have to multitask. It, 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 it gets hard, you know, and that's the, the one thing that I definitely um, try to be mindful of. It's just like when you're on the show, absolutely, you give 110% to the show, but, you know, find those times to kind of you know, to work on stuff for yourself or to just read or just to kind of fill your brain, you know, with, with other stuff. Um, because you never know something you read today might spark an idea three months from now, two months from now. You just never know. So it's always good to kind of to constantly kind of feed the brain. So I try to be mindful of that to kind of do that. Where do your, some of your best ideas come from? Where do your, some of your best ideas come from? You know, it's funny. I, I can get ideas from, you know, anywhere. Like, uh, you know, actually, um, I got a, an idea for a pilot just from reading The New Yorker. You know, so I try to read, you know, different, different things. But... Um, but it always starts most of the time for me like with a really interesting character and a really interesting dilemma that I think is kind of interesting. Um, but I kind of find that like, I can find ideas from any t- anywhere, and a lot of times not when I'm when I'm not looking for one. That's what it normally happens. You know, when I'm not thinking about it, you know, when my brain is actually resting, then something will kind of pop in. It's like, oh, what about this? This might be interesting to at least explore. Right. Well, absolutely. I completely agree. Sometimes the best ideas come when you're not. Right. Searching for them, or when you are, you know, at a crossroads, have a difficult, you have a problem with something, a script that you can't figure something out. Walking away sometimes, you know, allows your brain the time to kind of process everything and sort of figure that out. Um, I guess I just wanted to ask a couple more just general writing type questions. Um, where do you? Uh, you mentioned writing a book. Where are some of your favorite places? to write? Uh, right now, it changes from year to year. Right now, there's like this coffee bean and mantras that I go to. Um, and it's that so much so that I will pack my meals for the entire day. <laughs> I'll pack lunch, maybe dinner, and have it ready to go. Um, and I'll just sit there and write. Because Montrose is a really nice neighborhood. It's got this very kind of small town, you know, shopping strip kind of feel to it. And so I'll walk the neighborhood when I need to take a break. To the point now where they not only know my Starbucks name, so I just go by Mark in terms of Starbucks names. I don't have to spell it um, to the point where they actually know my full name. It's like, oh, hey, Marquis. Like, hey, what's up, Colette? And so, uh, to the point where they know the show where I'm working on, and they watch the show, and we talk about the show. Um, that's one place. Um, my, my apartment, you know, is another place. I have this thing where I'll put, like, um, an action movie on my TV on mute, and the rule is it has to be a movie that I've seen a billion times, so I'm going to get drawn into it, and the goal is like, alright, start, you know, you sit down when it starts, don't get up until Thor saves the day. And then that's when you can take a break, two hours and two and a half hours in. Um, and so I'll go through a couple of those, you know, throughout a day. So right now, those are the two kind of like spots when I'm like writing out of the office. What kind of stuff do you do to avoid procrastination? Or do you not have a problem? With oh, to stop procrastination? Yeah. Yeah, you know that that is like the writer's curse, just you know the procrastination of it. I think for me, if I get an early start, then I'm usually pretty good. And sometimes just getting out the house. If I have, I feel like one of these. Days, it might be hard to start writing. I'm, you know, my couch looks really good for a nap right now. Um, I'll just leave and just go somewhere else. And being outside helps. I Me, mean, I don't know why, I don't know why, but kind of just writing outside, you know, kind of helps kind of break the procrastination and sometimes just like plowing through it. You know, and you know, it's like, oh, I don't know what the scene's gonna be. Oh, I don't know how what the, the dialogue's gonna be for this one particular thing. And just sitting there and allowing yourself to not know the answer for a little bit. You know, it's almost all of it feels like, you know, when you 
you know, if you work out, you know, you stretch before you start your exercises. And sometimes, at least for me, that I have to do that with my mind too. That I have to kind of, you know, get it warm, start the pistons, get start the fire going before the, you know, the real good stuff starts coming. And in between um, jobs, like uh, in between shows or in, be, uh, in your hiatus, how much time do you spend writing? You know, I try every day. You know, I try to hit it like, you know, a full-time job. Some days are better than others in that regard. But, um, but I think for me, getting on a schedule and getting on a routine, you know, is very, very useful. If I know if I'm out the door by 8 and I'm at the coffee bean by, you know, 8.15 or 30, just settle down and, and, and dig in. Um, and I also try to plan out the day in advance. Like, you know, tomorrow you're going to read this, this, and this. Tomorrow you're going to work on this particular story. Tomorrow you're just going to read stuff and generate ideas and see what comes by the end of the day. Um, Which is definitely part of writing. Which is a part of writing, very much so. Um, not just sitting in, the, in front of the computer. Yeah, yeah. So I think for me, like having like a game plan for the next day also helps with like not procrastinating. Because sometimes, like especially when you're starting a project, it's like where do you start? Like where do you know? So it's like having a game plan. It's like well, start here. Don't spend an hour trying to figure out where to dig in. Just jump in. Right. And when you're not writing, how do you spend your free time? Uh, you know, I you know, I, you know, work out a lot. I like to hike. You know, I like to like bike and run. So I like to do outdoor type stuff. And I try to watch as much TV as I can and catch up on stuff. Just not only kind of think it's just you know good for you know the business and knowing what's out there and knowing what the content is and just knowing what people are doing in terms of like you know creativity in terms of like you know, shows and stories and scripts. Um, but just being inspired by something. You know what I mean? Because uh, when you see a great hour of TV, there's just nothing, that's for me, there's just nothing like it. You know, where, you're, where you love it so much, you want to call someone right after watching and say, hey, I saw this amazing thing, and watch it with me so can, we can talk about it. Episode. Yeah, I mean, so that's just, there's nothing like that, that feeling, at least for me. So, yeah. No, that's great. Um, and I guess, lastly, because I know I don't want to keep you too long, um, but uh, what, do you have any sort of specific advice for those aspiring TV writers out there trying to get their first job, trying to, you know, become you? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, it's to say, but just, well, a couple of things. Stick it out. You know what I mean? I know so many people that come here and the first kind of obstacle they hit and then they, they go back to where they're Ohio or they decide to kind of get out of the business and do something else. And so it takes a lot of time. And sometimes, you know, that's just, that's just the name of the game. Um, two, be flexible with your plan. You know, so many people that they, you know, they kind of have this set goal and this set way that they're going to break in, and you have to be flexible and be flexible enough to change your plan. Like for me, I wanted to, you know, be on a show as an assistant and to get my freelance and then to build and work my up on one show. That was not my path, so I had to change the game and change it and come up with another plan. And so you have to be flexible with it, and you have to be willing to. You know, to put in the time and to put in the work. You know, if that means being an assistant, you know, for a couple of seasons on the show, then that's what you do. If that means it, because here's the other thing that I'm finding with kids that are like mid twenties, late twenties, that are coming out doing this. I think they're probably as a whole, just generalizing, a very entitled group. You know what I mean? It's a group of people that want everything instantly and aren't willing to put in the time and aren't willing to work hard and to put in the work. Certainly, you don't want to let yourself be abused, 
but you know, put in the time, stay, put in the extra hours, you know, be indispensable. And they don't know how or have the desire to be indispensable. Uh, and sometimes for some of them, I don't even think they know what that means. And so, and also understanding just because you want something doesn't mean you're ready for it. You know what I mean? You might want to be staff, that doesn't mean you're ready to be staff. And being a good staff writer, being a good person on staff, is not just about being good on the page. It's about knowing how to manage relationships with other people, it's about knowing how to pitch, it's about knowing when to pitch, when not to pitch. It's knowing about how to build upon someone else's pitches. Again, it's about knowing how to be indispensable. If you don't know how to be indispensable as an assistant, you're not gonna learn how to be indispensable as a staff writer. And that is key, if you're gonna hang on to your job as a staff writer. Because there's someone else behind you waiting to be indispensable in the way that you are not. You know, so, I don't know if that helps or not, but that's... No, that's great. You know, but so I think that's a lot of it. It's just like, put in the time, do the work, be flexible. You know, and another thing too, I was talking to someone um, at my church the other day, and again, they just have this one set plan. It's like, well, well, that's fine, and maybe that will work, but what else are you trying? You don't just attack it one way, you attack it five ways if you can, if you can think about it, because you never know which way is gonna bear fruit. You don't never know what seed you're planting today that's gonna bear fruit six months from now. Um, you know, I don't know. Other thing too, I'm not going on and on. I think people are so interested in what I what they can get from other people, and I think it's useful to understand that no matter where you are, even if you are a writer's assistant, if you've been a writer's assistant, you know, two years. That's two years longer than someone else who hasn't done it, and you never know who they might know. You never know what benefit that might come to you down the line or not. Just be a decent human being and put in the system. If you take from the system, put in the system. That's my, that's a rule I, kinda, I try to live by. Because uh, there are certain people that have helped me along the way, that continue to help me along the way. So it you know, behooves me just as a decent human being to do the same. Right. Was he good? And uh, that's, a great, that's a great way to end this. So uh, um, what's, your, what's your Twitter handle? Even though you're, you're a great writer, you're a terrible Twitter because you don't tweet hardly at all. Uh, yes, I'm the, yeah, I'm not, I'm not the biggest social media person. Not for any reason. I just never, I never think to do you're social writing. media. You're writing. I get you. I get you. Yeah. Or hiking. Um, but what's your, what's your Twitter handle? Twitter handle is at Marky Jackson. At Marky Jackson. Yeah, that's at M-A-R-Q-U-I-J-A-C-K-S-O-N. To win, all one word, no space. Yeah, definitely follow Marquis. We have all of his links and stuff on our website. You can check that out as well. Um, thanks for coming on, Marquis. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening.